Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James, and back with me today, I have Jessica, Hugh, and Indy from the Somex team. And we are going to be talking about, of course, AI and large language models. We're going to be talking about whales and how great they are at digital health and we're going to be talking about a new place for startups to raise lots of lovely money for their companies. So story number one this week is digital health revolution. Almost half of people in Wales are using technology to manage their health. So New research has shown that almost half of people in Wales used the internet and digital technology to manage their health in 2020, 2021, which is double the figure from the previous year. Um, Wales has been an interesting one. It's been on the radar for quite a while, actually, about just how good they are at getting adoption. And the fact that they've doubled the amount of people that are using tech in health is pretty interesting. I know, Hugh, that you've had a read of this. What do you think? Yeah, so I think there's just something about Wales's health system's flexibility. You know, it's it it has that autonomy as a health system and a smaller population that it can move a bit faster and can get people engaged with digital solutions. And it also has, you know, really sparsely populated areas and kind of mix uh, in terms of where everyone's located. So, it, you know, not only that, it kind of really needs to use these uh, digital solutions to kind of get to people and, and make things easier for clinicians, patients alike. Uh, it's a really interesting story, not not least because it it, it is patient self-reported. And if you look at you know how people were asked to rate their engagement with digital health, um, you know it includes everything from tracking healthy behaviours, finding health information, requesting a health appointment or prescription, receiving clinical care, COVID nineteen activities. So there's a lot of positive. Um, stuff in there basically about how people, you know, digital adoption, digital adoption of digital health solutions. Then there's the kind of converse side of things, which is if people are using the internet to find health information, um, that is, could be, you know, everything from something like Dr. Google to, you know, really good active health information. So I think there's a little bit of a, a balance to be struck um, in sort of, you know, how cautiously we welcome this this news. It's good generally but it could be like i think we'd like to perhaps get a bit more information on exactly what solutions are being used exactly how they're being used as well um i think there's a real positive story that people want to use the internet more than they are currently as well particularly among the 30 to 54 year olds so you know that millennial and gen x uh, audience as well which is quite interesting in its in its own way um you know, we're not seeing the kind of appetite there among uh, you know, people below 30, but that could be because they're already using it um, <laughs> quite enough as it is. Um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting story. Um, I think the digital inclusion piece is one that will be yeah. interesting. Obviously, using technology to help close that gap is really important. Hopefully, it, it doesn't, you know, in some cases, widen that gap. And I think that's something digital inclusion. I think that one of the charities that responded to it was Digital Inclusion Alliance Wales and, you know, stressed that digitization does risk leaving the most vulnerable behind mm. due to digital exclusion so uh possibly a bit more to look at a bit uh, a bit you know a bit more research to dive deeper and see what see you know how the solutions that are being used to help to close this gap yeah i wonder whether just to, i'm interested in this this age range um that it focuses on 30 to 54 
And I, I wonder if the reason why perhaps the younger generation have not been identified as those wanting to use it more is, as you said, perhaps it's already using it and it's just part of their life anyway. But also, I guess they are an age group of people who are less likely to require healthcare and um, support. I guess, you know, potentially they'll have be more likely to use trackers and all of that kind of thing, but they might not necessarily consider that accessing care um, using the internet or, or that kind of thing. But yeah, I'm just really interested in this age gap. And as someone who fits within that <laughs> that age bracket, is it that you reach 30 and you you start taking your health more seriously or you start having more aches and pains? Um, I don't know. It just, it's interesting. Um, the thing that sort of stands out for me, I think it's it's absolutely great. And one thing that I'm sort of wondering around this this age range is maybe the reason that we're not seeing that older population use technology is because of how accessible technology is for those populations. You know, we talk a lot about accessibility and ensuring that digital technologies are developed to be as inclusive um, as possible in, in terms of age as well. And a lot of older people aren't necessarily as digitally competent with technology and that sort of comes into as well the digital divide that there is in Wales where there are um, a higher population of people living in deprived areas so as Hugh sort of said it'll be it'll be nice to sort of dive in a little bit deeper and and see exactly what these technologies are and and if that age range is using technologies more because that technology is more accessible to them and whether more needs to be done to um to see more inclusivity in the older age ranges as well maybe it comes down to trust as well because I think Mm. that that generation is largely less trusting of technology it's not been with them through from day dot when they were born whereas you know for generations you know children being born now all they will have known is the internet smartphones screens all of that sort of thing um and you know we see that play out broadly in technology um and, and we talk about it where clinicians are concerned a lot as well. Like the ultimately use of technology and appetite for it is is reliant on trust. And I think when you don't know any different, you're going to have more inherent trust. Um, so I wonder if that's something that perhaps is also con- contributing here. I worked in Wales, the Wrexham Myler. Wrexham obviously made famous recently by Ryan Reynolds uh, and Rob McElhenney's investment into Wrexham Football Club. Yeah, it's it, I, I loved I loved working there. Uh, certainly though, I mean, geography definitely is a driver to, I think the necessity for people to use digital. And that's, a, I guess, one of the reasons why it's been positive and they've seen this uptick because I think, um, there's some amazing geography in Wales, but it can make people quite far away from each other. And it makes driving quite annoying to get from A to B sometimes. Um, but yeah, someone from Public Health Wales actually said that it was largely down to COVID-19. So they said it had an immediate impact on many aspects of our lives, numerous activities transferring online very quickly. And yeah, essentially that COVID has been this incredible driver for it, which I think we have seen broadly, but where you have got a population like Wales, perhaps then it becomes stickier because actually the problems solved are greater 
because of the need for it. I think the, the digital divide that you guys obviously talk about here, like, it's obviously incredibly important. We need to keep it front of mind. The, the higher proportion of people living in deprived areas being less likely to be online. Um, and they've noted that even since these figures. So that does become important. And as you guys have said, Joe, we need to, A, have a look at it and see what that problem really is. But uh, yeah, not leaving people behind with digital and finding ways is how the article concludes, you know, finding ways to um, uh, make sure those without internet access or who choose not to engage with health technology still have access to the same level and the same quality of care being incredibly important. Um, but good news for Wales. Well done. Right. Second story we're going to talk about today Um I think I might have even said this last week, but unless you've been living under a rock, well, you shouldn't have missed the fact that large language models are the front of everyone's mind right now. And the public have been using ChatGPT. I mean, Bard, I think, has been the, the Google one. But we're now starting to see the race in healthcare with Google, Microsoft, both, certainly those two, and actually others too, there are startups in this race now too, but looking at large language models and, yeah, turning their attention to healthcare and the problems that can be solved there. Google have released MedPalm 2 to a limited group of users, and Google claims that MedPalm 2 was the first large language model to perform at an expert test taker level performance on the uh, MedQA dataset of the US medical licensing examination style questions, reaching 85% plus accuracy. And it was the first AI system to reach a passing score on a different one, comprising Indian AIMS and NEAT medical exam questions, scoring 72.3%. So, Clearly, MedPalm 2 is passing exams. We also saw, I think it was last week on this podcast, Nuance Communications and Microsoft using this technology to help with note-taking and things like that. So, yeah, the, this is getting larger and larger. What The thing that hits me first when I see that, you know, 85%, 72.3% doing medical exams is like, What's the 15 to 30% that it missed? What's the 15 to 30% that it got wrong? Is that the 30% that's like, what are the right investigations when you've got, I don't know, potential pituitary problems or like what, what, what is it actually getting wrong? Why is it getting those bits wrong? Why is it not hundred? Like I don't quite understand, but um, I'm sure there are, I'm sure there are explanations. This and it's obviously only going to get better if you assume any improvement at all. But I think it was Babylon ages ago as well that Babylon was passing an exam. Didn't Babylon pass a GP exam quite a while ago, like as in years ago? Um, so this stuff isn't brand new, but the large language models are doing something interesting now. But I, I, There was some interesting press around that claim. I think it may have been an overclaim um, from, from the Babylon team, potentially, but there was some backlash against that. Okay, so a controversial one that potentially this has been done before in exams, but... Like, yeah, large language models in healthcare. I mean, we could talk about the individual stories here, but ultimately there's just a heck of a lot going on, isn't there? What's your guys' feeling on this? All bets are off the table on 
generative AI at the moment, aren't they? We, we could make a, a, a massive claim about what it can and can't do, what it, uh, you know, and try and identify exactly the things that we, it, it is that 15% point. It can do 85% of the things. It can answer things to an 85% standard. There's the 15% it can't. Any claims that we make now, it feels like six months ago, it wouldn't have managed 50%. Mm. Two years before that, it might have managed five. Yeah. You know, it's passing medical exams now. It's um, passed the bar in mm. multiple US states from a legal perspective. It's clearly got incredible applications. I think I'm just going to fess up and say, I think anything, any claim we make now will be wrong three months from mm. now. But there is a key part about what can it pretend to do the same way as humans and what human angle is it missing what what are the things that it cannot intuit its way what is it not clever enough to do and are where does that stop where is the the five percent maybe there's only two percent in the long run that humans can do that it can't but it's based on information and data it's trained on information and data so all of its answers are based on things that we already know or at least you know combined efforts of human knowledge already know so finding a limit to that's going to be an interesting. And once it starts, you know, can it start doing more than we already, you know, going beyond us? That's the real question. I think you're absolutely right. And clearly there's such huge, huge potential. However, it, it, I guess it comes back to what I was saying earlier. There's so much here about trust and people are incredibly skeptical. And I think it takes time to build trust. And I, I almost think that actually the question is not necessarily about what is its capability and potential? Like, what is the top end of that? Because I don't, right now, that's not where it is going to be most useful. And it's not where it's going to get used because people aren't going to have that inherent trust. So I think it actually, it's going back to the basics about where can it be used with trust and with safety whilst we work out its upper limits. And ultimately, I, as you say, Hugh, I don't know that we ever will work out those upper limits because by its very nature, it's evolving every day, it's changing over time. And that's what makes regulation of these kinds of technologies so difficult is that it's not static. What you review and regulate on any given day is already out of date the next day. Um, and I think, you know, you compare it to medicines and all of that kind of thing that, you know, you can have a real you know, a, a, a blockbuster, potentially blockbuster drug that shows huge potential in, and some really strong early data. But you're not going to skip the rest of the process and just give it straight to a person because it looks like it could blow everything else out the water at that early stage. It has to go through that safety profiling and the additional research to build trust and to have that confidence that it can be used and to understand what the right parameters for its use are and the right circumstances you know we talk about regulation a lot on here and i just i think it does come back to that that we're we're not in a place where we can confidently say to your point like this is what it absolutely can do versus this is the bit that it might pretend that it can do i, I just i think it's unfortunately a little bit murky and I don't mean that in the sense that 
you know, there's some kind of conspiracy. I don't think that at all. But I think it comes back to what we can confidently do safely. And I think, yeah, off the back of that, it, it, it gives me sort of hope in, in tasks like admin tasks, administrative, day-to-day, um, streamlining of um, sort of work that currently is a lot more laborious and, and taking up a lot of precious time for clinicians. And ultimately, I, I think, it, you know, in areas like that, it, it's going to be hopefully extremely beneficial but it is more in that sort of diagnostic side that I think we is definitely the more sort of we need to approach with caution and just be aware of its limitations. And ultimately as well, it's, you know, they're also trained on and um, the sum of the limitations of the data sets that they are trained on. Um, and we know that we, we are lacking data, um, for example, on women's health um, and we're lacking data that covers across different genders, minorities and and races as well. And that is something that to a clinician in person, they may be able to make that more responsible choice, but is AI able to make those, those decisions just based on the data that it's trained on? I don't think we can confidently say that at this point. Looking, looking outside of health, there was a court in Southern United States that started trying to use sort of much more um, primitive like AI tools to make judgments, you know, speed up judgments um, within the court. And it instinctively gave worse sentences to black and minority ethnic defendants because and when they looked into it, it was because the data they were feeding it showed that that is what sentences humans are given. It. It's, it's, it's purely calling out all of our biases. And I think, there's, you know, going back to your point, Jessica, on the trust side, you know, OpenAI, the, the company that created ChatGPT, it's, it's, you know, been pointed out as being a, a massive misnomer because the decisions that it made, the development approach they've taken is closed box. Like we do not know how ChatGPT comes to the decisions that it makes. No one does, not even the developers. That is terrifying. Exactly, exactly. We cannot, can we trust it if we do not know how it make, comes to the decisions that it makes? Not solely, but to, to advocate for the technology, it's interesting how I suppose even in this chat, we're defaulting to this almost binary decision of can we trust it or not? and. It's more how do we trust it in the right context? How do we make sure it does the things we want it to do? And as we go through time, having this expectation that that it will be autonomous, I think is 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 it's just not going to be the case. If you consider the scrutiny that we put a human under before they can make clinical decisions on their own, if you consider the scrutiny we put a drug under before it is allowed to go to market with all of the clinical trials that has to be done. So if you consider the scrutiny of those two things, if we're talking about, you know, what chat GPT can do or what any large language model can do, we're talking more along the lines of, I suppose, a human than a drug, although you could argue it would have to go through the same scrutiny as both. And for a doctor, that's five years of medical school and then eight years of training before, before consultant and you, 
you, you, you know, you, you're fully accepting that it can be autonomous. And so um, it might even be how do we think about that? So yes, it can pass the exams and that is one part of it, but you're also assessed on communication skills. You're also assessed practically on your examination skills and you're assessed on your problem solving. And I know with GPT-4, Sam Altman has talked a lot on that podcast I listened to with him and Lex Friedman, he talked a lot about GPT-4's increased ability in problem solving and actually that skill being assessed. I would be, I'd be very interested to see how it coped with like the, the entrance school exams to medical school and even things like prioritizing four cases. You've got one child who's breathless, who's got, leg pain you've got and throw it some random things and like you've got you've got one 74 year old that has had a fall and is blah like who do you send the ambulance to if you've only got one resource like who do you prioritize in primary care who do you send to this versus that i think it, it, it's it'd be so interesting to put this through its paces across all types of assessment because at the end of the day as well if we take the approach of wanting this to be better wanting this to help us i know from my education degree, you know, assessment drives learning. And if we can define how we want to assess this in order to do something that will be incredibly relevant, important, and useful to us, if we think about that, if we think, okay, here's here's where we want to use it, here's where we think we can use it, okay, what's the assessment that's actually going to make us comfortable? What would we actually need to do? And you could take the most cynical person and you could ask them, what what assessment would you want to put this through in order to make you comfortable? And it might be that it needs to see a million things before it's comfortable. Okay, fine. Well, how do we proxy that? How do we figure that out? So we, we can do things that way. The other thing I just wanted to say, though, on this is that Hardy and Health have written a fantastic blog on this. And I say that not just because we know Hugh Harvey very well. It genuinely is a very interesting article on this. And I just want to read like the opening paragraph of this because this really puts into context a lot of we're talk- what we're talking about now. Because yes, it can be used in administrative stuff. Yes, it can even be tested in the clinical questions that I've just said. Can it prioritize four cases and slim resource to tell you where the best resource should be spent and all that sort of stuff? But it's important to say that I mean, the, the, what they open, what Hiding Health opens within this blog is that chat GPT and other models like it cannot be used safely right now. We know that, be- but because they are prone to what you said before, to hallucination bias and can produce extremely plausible sounding misinformation, which is, uh, Again, one of your points, Jess, about trust. And I think that is so interesting because when we talk about assessment and we talk about what we put humans through, one of the first things you're told at medical school, or certainly what we were told at medical school, is that you are negatively marked, which basically means is what what that what behavior that then encourages, or what more to the point, what behavior that discourages is guessing. You do not guess. If you do not know, you say, I do not know. That is critical and central to the learning and assessment of people in healthcare and medical school doctors in medical school to be really specific so it's interesting that i think one of the biggest problems here with trust from clinicians to chat gpt and large language models i think is because it will not say i don't know 
because actually you can raise a heck of a lot of credibility if you can present what you do. What, what the, I can tell you, the way you're taught to answer in a scenario like that is that you say what you do know around it, but then you admit that you do not know what they are asking. The examiner is asking, the exam paper is asking. You say what you do know, but then say what you do not know and what you will go away and learn and how you plan to go away and learn it. And that, as I say, is central and critical to the learning, the assessment of a doctor and their credibility to their examiner and to their patients and all the rest of it. And so this hallucination and this pretending to know things, again, something you said earlier, Hugh, I think is really hurting it when it comes to the potential that it can have in building trust with clinicians, but also as it goes on its journey to becoming um, a regulated medical device. Now, just to be absolutely clear, it's so far off. From reading this blog that Harding have written about, by the way, how it would be eventually regulated as a medical device, it is a long, long, long way off. Um, and what they basically say in here is that the large language models are far better suited to generating creative rather than factual output. And actually, Hugh, that's something you said in our team call earlier today that you'd looked at it for some stuff and actually it just spat out facts that weren't actually appropriate. And whilst we use it internally at Somex for creative, we rely far less on it for fact. And that seems to be a major limiter in actually the content that it puts out. Um, but yeah, just to be absolutely clear, to rely on them in medicine is frankly illegal. In most jurisdictions, it says here, it violates professional standards, it violates clinical codes of conduct, medical device regulations, and patient data protection laws. Even allowing them to be used for general medical search and queries could land their developers in trouble, as according to Haupt et al. So papers linked in here. Uh, they could be liable for medical misinformation as well as setting up litigation issues for clinical end users who may rely on plausible sounding, non-standard misinformation to make clinical decisions. So a huge warning here from the experts in Hardy and Health that where we have these conversations about it being used, this is not licensed for anyone to go and try it. You've got to be really careful what information you even give it. So if you are in a clinical scenario and you feed ChatGPT information that could be identifiable, you could well be breaking the law. So you definitely don't want to be doing that. Um, and you're unlikely to be protected from the looks of things because of the decision you've made to do that. So I think it's really important that people remember that. But I do also, whether you call me a sympathizer, whether you call me an optimist, or whether you call me an evangelist, I don't know for this technology, my feeling for this always goes to how can we use it? How should we use it? How could we use it? And I want to be on the side of the possible rather than be on the side of the cynical and the ones that want to shut it down. I was actually at dinner last night with two radiologists, a consultant radiologist and a trainee radiologist. Um, the consultant radiologist, uh, calf shout out. Thanks for the steak. He, I, I did my F1 with him and he is, uh, he's now a consultant radiologist at Guys and St. Thomas's, and, and he was saying he's used ChatGP to not, not for anything clinical, but as a general member of the public, he's quite aware of what it can do. Um, and I think he, he said it's interesting that some of his colleagues and friends and people that he knows are 
very, very optimistic about it, but some are incredibly cynical. And quite a lot of clinicians are not fearful that it will take their jobs, but more, he described it as kind of, they don't want to assume or feel that anything could possibly even come close to their level of intelligence and problem solving. Whereas from playing, playing with ChatGPT, he feels like this absolutely can and absolutely will. And so there's definitely a barrier there. Um, and, you know, the side of the people that are going to be trying to use it are probably going to win, in my opinion. Um, much like with AI in radiology more generally, which is why he feels that people should be on the side of this because he's seen it happen with AI. Um, you know, looking at the red dot on the scans, that it's already decided where the pathology is on a lot of his stuff that he reports on. Anyway, I digress. I think it's, um, yeah, I think it's super interesting. And I, but I, I really encourage you, particularly if you are clinical, to read this blog from Hardy and Health. It's on their website. Um, it's called How to Get Regulatory Approval for Medical Large Language Models, and it is very good. So there's a, there's a flip side question to this, which is obviously there's vested interests in two, five, ten years from now. AI being used on mass in healthcare, and there's vested interests in it not. So the process of getting it to market properly is going to be costly. It's mm-hmm. going to be arduous, and it's going to require probably more runway than a lot of digital health startups have. More mm-hmm. resources, more runway. Does this make Microsoft or Google or Oracle or Epic the kingmakers when it comes to what? the AI will be using in health five years from now. I feel like it does. Can I just ask a quick question, Hugh? When you say kingmakers, do you mean as in they're really only the people that would be able to develop it as opposed to people without, like smaller companies without the resources? Smaller companies probably have to sell up to Microsoft or Google or any of the others in order for to get that. Basically, they have to exit with fire acquisition. Mm. Yeah, so they they will have monopoly over the LLM in healthcare. Is that sort of what you mean? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Can I say, could it be the other way around where ultimately it requires companies to be utilising big tech companies, LLM software and technology rather than their own or, I don't know, but, but ultimately, you know, I guess, rather than it being driven by big tech, actually big tech becomes integrated into smaller innovations and solutions companies. Well, yeah, it, well, I guess that would depend on whether it's MedPalm 2, whether it's, I mean, ChatGPT, they've given it to everyone, right? They, they've released a, basically a free version for the entire public and a very cheap version for, for everyone too, that, that, that basically anyone can buy. So the, the access to it is there. The, the ChatGPT APIs are there. So, it might be that, yes, whilst at least in part those bigger companies are the ones generating revenue from the people that are using the model, and therefore, yes, ultimately it's going to end up in big tech. You know, you follow the road f- long enough, you're going to end up at one of the big techs for these large language models. Fair enough, but yes, I, I suppose it does allow you or I to build a business using that technology Um, in healthcare. I mean, you look at 
how much market share Microsoft has, or at least you know how many sites Microsoft is in the NHS and things like that. You think, well, their partnership with Nuance Communications, their partnership like putting Azure and LLM stuff together, and like what they can end up doing, they can kind of place this stuff everywhere, and then all of a sudden, everyone is using Microsoft and um, similar with Google and other places. Like it, it I guess there is that. Uh, whether it feels like a monopoly, I don't know. Whether it feels inappropriate, I don't know. I kind of feel like this is just how it's going to be for a while. I think there's just going to be lots of things that are built using it. Um, and ultimately, yeah, I think if it's a really good healthcare application. So, for example, in one of these articles, let me just pull it up. In one of these articles, um, it mentions, I think, Doximity. Yeah, in February, Doximity, a digital platform for medical professionals, rolled out a beta version of a chat GPT-type tool for doctors that helps streamline some of their time-consuming administrative tasks, such as drafting, faxing pre-authorization, it's obviously US, and appeal letters to insurers. The open beta site called DocsGPT.com is an integration with ChatGPT that works with Doximity's free fax service. So yeah, it looks like that smaller businesses are being created with this um, and whether or not they want to be bought and exit that way so that those big tech companies own everything, I don't know. Uh, whether or not they can grow large enough and everyone's fine with it, who knows? And who knows what market forces are going to start or stop any of that stuff. But yeah, I, I think there's so much opportunity for people to start using it because of the entry being just the 10 quid a month or whatever to get GPT-4. Um, yeah, it's just, oh, it's just super interesting time. It's almost like overwhelming all of this. You know, like It's almost like trying to keep up with the potential of it and trying to paint myself as anything other than like <laughs> just someone who knows it's going on. I'm certainly not an expert in any of this stuff. My opinion is just literally that. It's not based on anything more than the articles that I read, the things that I try and do. It's just so difficult to, oh, it's just so difficult to stay on top of all this. I think uh, the message to listeners is tune in next week and we'll give you an update on what uh, generative AI is claiming it can do. <laughs> yeah, we'll try not Maybe to talk a about it slot. every single week, but <laughs> we will we will uh, we'll certainly talk about it where necessary and I don't know, the pace of change. God, it's, just, it's so difficult to keep up. Um, long story short, it is being used in healthcare. It is being used by Microsoft, by Google. It's passing exams. It's taking consultation notes it's doing interesting stuff hopefully fingers crossed it makes clinicians lives a bit easier it certainly has the potential to um and it ups a bit of quality for healthcare for patients as well wouldn't that be nice um wouldn't it be nice for some true digital health to come in and actually make a massive change um and wales will probably buy it first thank you everybody for joining us uh it's been an absolute pleasure uh we'll be back next week for more chat gpt chaos and of course, healthtechpigeon.com. That's where you can grab all of the links and the newsletter, etc.